The stories of some of the world's greatest women unfold here. I am Annette Comer, your host, and each week the untold secrets of success, strength, and boldness of today's powerful women are revealed. Today's woman grew up in a liberal family and was the oldest of three children. As a child, she took acting lessons and all thought she would be a professional actress. However, in college, she realized she would be a better director than actress. So she moved to New York City and broke into the opera scene. Eventually, she worked her way to the stage director level at Metropolitan Opera, one of the largest classical music organizations in North America. As time passed, the director level wasn't enough. She wanted to run an opera company, but no one would give her the job. So she started her own company. Today, after spending 30 years in the opera arena, she has taken her lifetime of perfecting the art of presenting and is using it to help leaders become concise and compelling presenters. It is my pleasure to introduce you to Elizabeth Botlin. Hi, Elizabeth. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Annette. I'm just thrilled. I just, I've jumped at the chance to be one of the world's greatest women. What an honor. Well, Thank you. Well, and you, you're in a good place with many good company for sure. So I'm so excited to have you with me today. So I'm going to get right into it because I got a lot of questions I want to ask you. So you ran your own opera company for 30 years. Actually, I was 30 years in the business, but some of that was being fourth assistant from the left backstage. So <laughs> the, all right. The Tyrolean Opera Program, Top Opera, was a joint Austrian and American summer opera company that mostly focused on training young singers. So it was really um, part school, part opera company, part production. And actually, it was partly an international exchange program uh, in disguise. I didn't, I've never told them that that's. This was an international exchange, but the experience of living and working for three weeks with someone who looks just like you, but has very different ideas about how the world works, was the sort of thing that I would get emails six months or a year later from the young people that we worked with to say, oh, now I see what you were talking about. So international exchange was a very, very important part of my growing up. And I wanted to, I, I sort of snuck that in underneath. So, so stay in this space for a second, because in that, you know, you were 30 years in the opera arena in some mm -hmm. form or another, but you ended up stepping out of that because you found yourself on the edge of burnout from that. Correct. So my question to you is how can other entrepreneurs identify when they may be close to burnout? Oh, well, you know, it's, um, you got to listen to your body. You've got to listen to the stories in your head. When what you're doing is just so routine that you can do it in your sleep, there's a certain comfort for the, in that. There's a certain familiarity. But when it gets to be dreading the work, then you, then you think, oh, hmm. If I, I got into this because of my passion. And if I'm not passionate about it, if it's too much about the day-to-day -day job, first of all, as, uh, as an entrepreneur, hopefully you have people to whom you are delegating the parts that you're not great at. So you're just doing the parts you're good at. But all too often, 
we try to do it all ourselves or we wind up if you're running a company you wind up doing too much of the of the grunt work if you will what i found was i was in danger of losing the ability to be moved by the music i'd been doing it for 30 years especially when you're working with young singers it's uh, it's the same 20 arias over and over and over again at, and you know even though i adore mozart i don't think i ever want to have to stage carabino's aria from act two ever again <laughs> I, I did that a lot and so it wasn't passionate the other part was the good luck for me was that i had started training speakers by then and i was so excited to be working with speakers because i learned from everybody i worked with as you do you understand this learning about technology learning about soil microbes and how do you talk about the necessity for restoring soil microbes to agricultural soil or the necessity for for getting away from the tech and thinking about the people that you're managing there's such a wider range of things to talk about. And it turns out that the skills you need to sell an idea or a product or a service are pretty much the same skills you need to sell a song. So the skills were absolutely transferable. I just had to learn new vocabulary. And you've got a little bit of fire in your belly again for something new. Exactly. The joy is when you've got the clients, when after you finish a conversation, you get up and you dance around your, your office going, she's so smart. She's so smart. I'm so happy. I'm helping her getting out there. I, I was just talking to one client who started out talking about her tech skills, but she was really passionate about her people managing skills. She just didn't know how to talk about it. And through the work that we've done, I've gotten her to the C-level position where she was just considered a worker bee who solved problems and connected her with some people who specialize in helping thought leaders package their thought leadership material. There's a group that I work with very closely and so that she can figure out what she wants to say. And then once she knows how what she wants to say and how it all fits in a package to position her as the expert on this and to get people to think that's such a joy it's the equivalent of helping somebody who didn't understand mozart then make their debut at the metropolitan opera because i helped put them there that's the equivalent and that's so much satisfaction so i'm going to stay in this business world because we were kind of tiptoeing mm -hmm. around in this business world scene one of the things that you said to me in the conversation was that you found in the business world that if someone was concerned about money they would trust a man quicker than they would a woman yeah i'm curious about that do you have thoughts on why that might be this comes from having worked in nonprofits for, for nonprofit organizations for 30 years opera companies are always worried about money except the metropolitan opera you know at the met they have lots of money but when i was working in regional companies it was always about how can we do this for less? How can we save money? Then I started a nonprofit to run my own company and I had to raise that money. And then it was coming out of the bank account that I was responsible for. 
So I understand deep down that need for that worry about money. Where I really learned this was in the 90s, I was looking for, in the 1990s, I was looking to run an opera company. I wasn't going to make my own. I was going to run one of the companies that was out there. I knew I'd be good at it, but I didn't understand then that being known by your peers isn't enough. I was kind of waiting for the magic wand. I was waiting for someone to recognize the good work I'd done. I wasted years doing that. And I see so many women, especially, waiting to be recognized for the good work that they're doing. When I was applying for jobs to as an artistic director or a general director, I kept hitting a glass ceiling. I was consistently on the short list, but when it came down to it, the people who were doing the hiring were the boards of trustees. And trustees are ultimately responsible for the finances of the company. So they're worried about money. And when it came down to two equal, more or less equal candidates, the instinctive piece was to trust a man. And that's still out there. Interestingly, in banking, women tend to have equal power within the banking industry, in the finance industry women tend to have equal recognition by their peers, but there are still many, many customers who would rather trust a man. We got some more work to do there, don't we? We do. Actually, yes. a really, there's a really, good, a really good example is you look at Hollywood and you look at up until the last few years, when you're looking at the best director, who is somebody who's responsible for millions of dollars, it's the same 10 guys over and over. And the top five come out of the same pool of 10 men. And only now are women being allowed in. And when a woman gets nominated for an Oscar, that means that the finance people three or four years ago have actually trusted them with the funds. So that is beginning to change, but it's still female directors are still a minority. And that's so true in so many arenas. So I'm going to change direction in a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, You and I both know that studying historical cycles can be useful in understanding current times. And I know you study these because we talked about it a little bit. So what value do they bring for you? I like to think about cycles, partly because when I read the news and I despair, I, I think, okay, where have we been through this before and gotten out of it? When I look at people who are not being heard now, and I look back and I say, okay, maybe at the beginning of the 20th century, nobody wanted to let the Irish in. Nobody wanted to let the Italians in because they were the new ones. And then they became the establishment and other immigrants became the ones who weren't allowed in. Then I can see this as a historical cycle that gives me hope that there are ways out of it and also helps me with the people who are not listening to use a metaphor to say, well, you know, your ancestors were the ones who came over shoveling coal on the steamships 
And now you're in power, but it was your ancestors who had to scrabble their way and scratch their way up. Why not leave room for the ones who are a few generations farther on in the cycle? So I think of it as understanding the human condition. It means it's not personal. It means that, okay, this is something that we were taught, socialized to trust a man rather than a woman. How can we call that out, recognize it, and then change it? circle back again now back to you running your opera company because it hits on something that I want to pick your brain about a little bit and that is the idea of risk so when you started your own opera company many people could have seen it as being very risky so I'm going to ask you uh, Elizabeth are you comfortable with taking risk and do you think men are more comfortable than women at taking risk that's two very different questions I'm comfortable with taking some risks Starting the opera program, putting myself out there, I knew I knew how to train the singers, how to put the mechanics together. But then I had to raise $100,000 to launch it. And I had to do that through speaking. And I was terrified. So for me, accountability is really, you know, in some ways, I'm very much like the cats who share my office. I would really rather be curled up in the corner sleeping. and. So declaring that I'm going to do something and having people depend on me, that will make me do it. Are men more comfortable with risk than women? Men, boys, are taught to be brave, are taught to try something. What the heck? If you fail, it's no big deal. Girls are taught to be careful. Girls, especially by the time you get to puberty, girls are taught that they're vulnerable. You know, I once had a male friend who was a big, burly guy with a beard ask me why I was afraid to walk down a dark alley at night because he couldn't understand it. And we had a long conversation about what it felt like to be aware that you were a target and that you were vulnerable. That comes from early childhood. So the idea of risk, there are a lot of women who, who will just go for it, who'll try for it, and they just want to disrupt things, and wonderful, good for them. I was always a little careful. So for me to take a risk, I have to set up accountability to make me step out of my comfort zone. And I think that is some brilliant nuggets of wisdom there that you pointed out of how men and women view risk differently. The other thing is that understanding it in my head is not the same as actually then taking the step. <laughs> so in order to take the step, I surround myself with people who are going to push me uh, because um, I, I'm very aware of risk. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's a good point is that we do need to surround ourselves to fill in that gap of places that we recognize are outside of our comfort zone because yes. it is not comfortable being uncomfortable for sure. No doubt about it. One of the things that's really good that I've learned over the years about delegation, 
uh, and I have plenty of coaches that I invest a lot of money in coaches who are going to push me out of my comfort zone. It's always easier to push someone else out of their comfort zone than to push yourself. So I have people whom I pay to make me walk my talk. And also then I don't have to do it myself. I don't have to do it all by myself. Having the delegation, letting go of the control that I'm an oldest child, I get paid to tell people what to do. So letting go of control and letting my team do it their way uh, has also been a useful lesson and not always an easy one. But it is a valuable lesson, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Very valuable. So do you think thinking big comes naturally to you? It depends on your asking on an absolute scale or a relative scale. I do, when I say, do I think big, then I think about all the people I've interviewed on my podcast who are way bigger thinkers than I am. I think big on behalf of my clients. And I think big for myself, but I have to be made to do it. I probably shouldn't admit that, but (laughs) we were talking about taking risks. I have to be made to do it. I know I have to be made to do it. I know that's a gap I need to plug. And so I will get support to have someone else help me do it because I know my business will be better. I know I can help more people, basically. You know, ultimately, I want to grow to the point where I have trainers who've learned my system. Uh, you know, I have a system that I haven't seen anyone else use. So I want to get people who are trained in the visible and valued system and set it up as a school, ultimately. And that's something I haven't admitted out loud on a recording yet. But, <laughs> but that, is, that is part of you thinking big. And, that's me and thinking big, yes. Absolutely. And I applaud you for that. And maybe you might even find that's not big enough. And I may yeah. find that's not big you enough. You may find that may not be big enough. Exactly. Yeah. It took me a while to get here and now being pushed to say, okay, what's next? What's bigger? How can you turn this into something that you can really help people with many levels and uh, you know, leveraging my time by teaching other people? So that's part of the three-year and the five-year plan. Uh, my friend, my business coach, it calls it HAGS, Highly Achievable Goals. So you currently live internationally, Mm -hmm. and I'm curious, how has this impacted your ability to be successful? Has it added to it? Has it distracted from it? What do you see? I apparently told my family when I was 12 that I was going to have an international life. And my grandmother, in the late 19-teens, before 1920, she lived internationally. And she spoke eight languages, my five plus Latin, Greek, and Japanese. So she raised us to say, think about the world, think about the whole world. So it has absolutely helped my success, especially because when working with opera singers, you're working with people from around the world. And I've always noticed the cultural, like I said, the international exchange, the cultural differences. Nowadays in business, Business is so international now that most of the companies I work with and most of the clients I work with are routinely talking to teams around the world. What can we learn about who they are, how they think, the way they communicate? I'm all about how do you get the point across 
well, if they don't think the way you do, you have to get the point across in a way that they can hear it. And that leads me to my next question, because you do teach others to be powerful presenters. And I'm curious, in that space, what did you find is the number one rule that all presenters must remember? Is it along the line of what you just spoke to? Rule number one is to make it about the listener. Who's listening? What do they care about? I use a technique I call strategic empathy, which is to empathize with the other person. Put yourself in their shoes and then be strategic about it. What is it that they care about? How can you address that in order to get your information across, to ask for the support you need to convince them to do something? And actually, that's something that came from my early training as an actor. Because as an actor, you have to figure out who is this person that you are portraying. You know, I had to figure out as a director, why would Madama Butterfly actually kill herself? As and doing that in the late 20th century to embody a story written by a 19th century man who saw women as perfect, self sacrificing, tragic heroines. I said, if I was a human being, how would it make sense for me that I would choose to kill myself? And strategic empathy grows out of that. So, I got a question that kind of takes us in a, just a little different direction, but I'm, I want your input on this being an international businesswoman as you are. What do you envision as the future for today's women leaders? I hope that we get to the point where it is assumed that you can be male or female or something in between, you know, somewhere on the spectrum, and our children will say, What do you mean you had to make a quota? What do you mean you had to make a quota to give women equal access to high school sports? What do you mean you had to have a quota to get women onto corporate boards? I can see the benefit of having diverse voices in leadership. I want to get to the point where we take it for granted. Yeah, we got a lot of work to do before that'll happen, don't we? Uh, It may not happen in in our lifetime, but it's going to happen in our children's lifetime. I agree. I agree. I think there's some catalysts already being placed in many different places in the world that are going to ignite that to happen much faster than we've seen in the past. I liked it. So here's a historical cycle. Uh, One of the things I like to think about that says it helps me say it's possible. I'm old enough to remember when seatbelts became mandatory, when cars had seatbelts and it was a law that you had to buckle up. I was a, a kid in a carpool and, uh, and we all had to put our seatbelts on to go to school. There was a huge backlash. There were a lot of people who said that was restricts my freedom. I don't want to do this. And how, does, how dare the government tell me I have to do this? But the government made a law to get people to do what was good for them. Traffic deaths went down. And now we take seatbelts for granted. We take it for granted that you're going to get in the car and put on the seatbelt. I want to get there, taking that kind of taking it for granted, that men and women and people of color, it doesn't matter what you look like, it matters what you can do. And I think we will get there. I think we will too. I'm very optimistic about our society and our future, especially the future for women. Even in the last four years, things have changed a great deal. So we are at a tipping point in this evolution. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. 
100%. Elizabeth, is there anything about your journey to greatness that we haven't covered that you'd like to share with other women? Well, one of the things that I've learned in working with high-level women, so most of the time my clients are high-level women in tech and law who have a seat at the table but aren't being listened to. And so I've learned how important it is to have a group around you. I run a group of masterminds. They're called the Visible and Valued Masterminds. And having a cohort, we were talking about support, having people who will support you, having people who will say, wait, don't dismiss this because you did it. This is something to be celebrated. You know, Wait, why isn't that on your resume? Things like that. Having a cohort around you for women particularly is really important. And that's something I have my cohorts and um, I really recognize, I hear it over and over from my clients. I really recognize how important it is to get support. Get someone who can look at you with outside eyes and push you, push you to think bigger. For sure. And we both need those in our lives, don't we? Because we're pretty big thinkers already, but we still undersell ourselves for sure of what Mm -hmm. our potential is. Elizabeth, I'm so grateful that you took time out of your busy schedule to come and share your nuggets of wisdom. Thank you, Annette. It's been a true honor. Thank you. And Elizabeth is another great example of how women are challenging the norm, making things happen, and demanding their own greatness. So join me next time on the World's Greatest Women Show as another powerful woman's story unfolds. 